0: Moment of honesty my nose just started bleeding so we'll see how this goes <laughs> Good morning brothers and sisters again It's good to be with you this morning gathered to worship our God We continue our service this morning now by hearing God's word proclaimed returning to our sermon series in Genesis the book of beginnings If you have your Bibles please open with me then to Genesis chapter 25 Genesis chapter 25 to reorient ourselves or introduce it to you if you haven't been with us in this sermon series. We call this series the book of beginnings because everything begins in this book, Genesis. It's literally the foundation of the Bible, the the first book, but it's also addressing life's most foundational questions. Who, Who is God? How does everything exist? What is mankind? What is our purpose? Why is there evil? Why is there good? And how do we have a relationship with God? You'll remember this this book written by Moses for the new nation of Israel tells not only of the creation of the world and man and their fall into evil, but of redemption and God's pursuit of a particular family through Abraham. And a nation to come, Israel, through whom he reveals himself. Well, Moses wrote this book to teach Israel, and and even us today, that the past, what God has done in the past, is is lesson for for now and for the future. As God has been, so he will be. Not only for us today, but for for all time. So let's begin this morning by reading our passage, and then I will pray to ask God to, to help us in our study. So let's read Genesis 25, where we will pick up in verse 12, and we'll read all the way through the end of the chapter in verse 34. Genesis 25, 12 through 34, God's sovereign choice. Let's read. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebeoth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Ebil, Midsum, Mishma, Duma, Massa, Hadad, Tima, Jeder, Naphish, and Ketemah. These are the sons of Ishmael. And these are their names by their villages and by their encampments. Twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt, in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, of Padam Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body, like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die of what use is a birthright to me. Jacob said, swear to me now. Now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, the words we read this morning, black and white on the page, are living and active. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. In your hand, it pierces to the division of soul and spirit, discerning the thoughts and intentions of our heart. So we pray, Lord, pick up your word by your spirit and show us our hearts. Reveal to us the majesty of our Savior Jesus Christ so that we might be transformed into the image of your Son. In his precious name we pray. Amen. Well, how do you explain why you're a Christian? How do you explain why you're a Christian? If you met someone new who asked you, why, why are you a Christian? What might you say? For, for those of all, all of us who follow Christ, all of our stories are, are different. We all have different reasons, don't we? You might have to talk about your parents or a particular trial in your past. Or a friend. You'll certainly have to tell them about how you in particular heard the message of Jesus' death and resurrection for your sins. And how you in particular responded with faith and repentance. But but honestly, come to think of it, that's, that's how we became Christians. Not why. Why is it that you heard and believed while thousands... Don't. We've sung this morning already. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. Or my heart would still refuse you had you not chosen me. When we get past all of the circumstances of our lives and get to the the bottom of why we are what we are, we have only one thing to say. Why? Why? Not because of anything in me, but because God had mercy. As we, this morning, turn back to the story of the patriarchs, of a a pagan nobody, Abram, called by God, given a son Isaac, and now his sons, Jacob and Esau, we see that, that God's sovereign mercy is at the bottom of why this family and this son is chosen Over any other in the world. Our one sentence summary of this passage, our big idea this morning is this The blessings of God are not inherited by birth or earned by behavior, but bestowed by His sovereign mercy. Let me say that again The blessings of God are not inherited by birth or earned by behavior, but bestowed by His sovereign mercy. God's sovereign choice first of of Abram, the the moon worshiper, and then his son Isaac over Ishmael, and now his son Jacob over Esau, is not based on their birth or their, their behavior. God's election is based on his mercy and love. The blessings of God are not inherited by birth or earned by behavior, but bestowed by his sovereign mercy. We'll have four points this morning. Four points. First, God remembers in verses 12 through 18. Second, God hears in 19 through 22. Third, God chooses in verse 23. And the one that is very different at the end, we do what we want in verses 24 through 34. God remembers, God hears, God chooses, we do what we want in verses 24 through 34. As we consider these points, I pray that we will all see more clearly the reason why we are a Christian, because of God's electing mercy. But let's start at the top then with the first paragraph, the genealogy of Ishmael in in verse 12, and our first point, God remembers. God remembers. It's been a while since we've been in Genesis. You might wonder, why did we stop our study in verse 11? Why are we starting again in verse 12? If you just think about the Bible in terms of chapters and verses, it's an odd spot to stop and to start. Well, actually, verse 12 is Moses' chapter marker. If you've been with us in this sermon series in Genesis or have read Genesis lately, verse 12 will be familiar to you. He says there in verse 12, These are the generations of... This phrase shows up ten times in the book of Genesis. Moses uses this phrase to indicate that he's moving on in his book to a new subject. You know, that the chapters and verses that we have in our English Bibles were, were added thousands of years later. And they're more to help us navigate. I can tell you chapter 25, verse 12, and you can find it. They don't tell us the structure of the book, what Moses intended so if, if Genesis was your favorite TV show, chapter twelve, or sorry, chapter twenty-five, verse twelve would be a new episode. But not only a new episode, it would be the first episode of a brand new season. This new season marks the end of the last season. You might remember in verse eight Abraham's death. But this isn't chronological. Abraham was actually alive, if you add up the years, to see Jacob and Esau born. And he lived until they were 15 years old. But that season is over. Abraham's part in this story, the the first and great patriarch, is, is over. It ends officially there in verse 11, right before what we read, where the blessing promised to Abraham now goes to Isaac, his son, God's faithfulness to his people doesn't die with Abraham. He had promised to Abraham, through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. So verse 12, we have the the seventh season, if you will, of Moses' TV show in the book of beginnings. The seventh generation list. If you're anything like me, you might be tempted normally to read through lists like this quickly. Quickly. When you read through the the twelve sons. Especially if you're reading, for example, the first nine chapters of 1 Chronicles. Lots of genealogies. Your eyes might just glaze over. And the next thing you know, you're thinking about all the things you need to do that day. Well, let me point out, church, that genealogies like this trace the faithfulness of God. From generation to generation, He remains the same. It's as he says to Moses later in his life, when he reveals his name to him, that he keeps steadfast love for thousands, meaning for thousands of generations. God here in the genealogies is is tracing the line that started way back in Genesis 3.15. Do you remember that promise that we studied, packed in the middle of the curses? Speaking to the serpent, Satan, God says in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you, that is Satan, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God here is, is speaking about two family lines from this point forward, one of Satan and one of Eve. God promised in Genesis 3.15 to to send a a snake-crushing male descendant of Eve to defeat Satan and restore his people to to paradise. So in these genealogies, God is making great pains to record for us these lines. Eve's line is, is through Noah, then Abraham, then through thousands of generations until Abraham's son, Jesus, is born. But that line, that line will be opposed by another line. He he says there will be enmity between Satan's line and Eve's. Certainly there are other wonderful things for us to behold in the genealogies of Scripture, but, but always keep in mind when you read a genealogy in your Bible that they all are pointing to the last genealogy in Scripture found in the Gospels. Like the one recorded in Matthew 1, the foretold birth Of Jesus Christ. God remembers, and He always will. He is faithful, even to the finest detail, through generation and generation and generation. The next plotting step in God's remembering is Moses' recording here of the generations of, of Abraham's first son, Ishmael. And I want to point out two things in particular from this list. Did you notice how many sons he had? There in verse 16, Moses gives us their count, 12 princes according to their tribes. This is more understated proof of God's faithfulness, that God remembers, even if we've forgotten this little detail. Way back in Genesis 17, when when Abraham was about to receive the sign of the covenant, the circum- circumcision, God promised to bless Ishmael. And do you remember what he promised? Genesis seventeen twenty. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. So even if it's not through Ishmael that the, the covenant will move forward, God is faithful to him. He remembers his promise and fulfills it. Twelve princes. But there's something else here. Notice the last phrase of verse 18. Moses here is describing where his his family settled. In the ESV it says he settled over against all his kinsmen. The the, the NIV, if you're reading that, is, is even more explicit. They lived in hostility toward the tribes related to them. Some translations go a different route. The the CSB just says he he stayed near all his relatives. But but the ESV and NIV are are probably more accurate. And I I point that out because, again, it fulfills what God had promised earlier. God remembers. When Hagar was pregnant with Ishmael and was despised by, by Sarah, she ran off into the wilderness and there she met an angel who, who called her to return to Sarah and he did so with a promise. The angel promised that the God would multiply her offspring so that they cannot be numbered full for multitude. But, but in particular, Genesis sixteen twelve, the angel tells her what Ishmael will be like. The angel says he shall be a wild donkey of a man. His hand against everyone and everyone's hands against him and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen you see it there that last phrase he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen is exactly what moses records for us here back in genesis 25:18 it is exactly as god has said ishmael lives in hostility to his kinsmen the, the people of god ishmael's line represents the children, the offspring of Satan, in hostility toward the line of God. Friends, not only is God faithful to Ishmael, he is faithful even to those who reject him. You know, we won't hear much about Ishmael in the rest of the Bible. His descendants will marry a bit into Esau's family, but otherwise his name fades from the record. This is particularly relevant to you this morning if if you're not a Christian. Of course, God's faithfulness has relevance to Christians as well, but, but note that God is faithful even to people who reject him. Psalm 145, 9, The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Just like he is merciful to Ishmael, God is in fact good to all people, yourself included. Everything he has made receives his mercy, which means no one gets what they deserve from God. Because God is just, your sins, our sins, all deserve his immediate judgment. But he is faithful, he's faithful to his covenant. To Noah, in in all creation, to this day, he causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. And that rain does not flood the earth and destroy all life. So if you're joining us today and you're not a Christian, I would encourage you to see God's faithfulness to you. He has and always will be faithful to you. And for that, he deserves your worship. You will find no reason to reject God in himself. He is good to all, faithful to all that he has made. So compare what you deserve in your sins to what God has given you in abundant goodness. And I invite you to experience his goodness forever by coming to him in repentance and faith. God remembers. He is faithful to what he promises no matter what. And church, this is an encouragement for us to do exactly what we see Isaac and his wife Rebecca do next in our, our next point to pray. So look at our next verses in 19 through 21 In our second point, God hears. God hears in 19 through 21. We're picking up a solid pattern by now in Genesis, ever since the first genealogies with Cain and Seth, Moses always covers the line of Eve, the promised line, last. So after Ishmael, he turns to Isaac. So Moses here in verse 19 turns to the generations of the line of Eve, and in verse 19, the eighth generation list in the book of Genesis. This marks the beginning of the, the great next chapter in the story of Genesis, of Isaac and his sons, Jacob and Esau. Isaac is, of course, the, the promised son of, of Abraham, who, who waited 25 excruciating and, and testing years for his birth. And before he died, Abraham sent a servant to his, his homeland to, to get a wife for this son, who wasn't from the, the cursed people of, of Canaan. Rebekah, we're reminded of, in, in verse 20. But verse 21 presents the problem in shorthand. Rebecca, Isaac's wife, is barren. Don't don't be mistaken when we read through narrative. The space on the page doesn't always indicate its importance. Yes, this is just one short verse, but it's vitally important. Of course, it's it's an echo of what happened to to Abraham, his father before him. God promised to Abraham that he would have offspring, as numerous as the stars, but, but they had no child. And, and with Abraham, we have eight chapters of, of narrative of highs and lows before the promised child was born. And of course, that hope was passed on to Isaac. If Abraham is going to have numerous descendants, well, Isaac has to have children. I wonder, did, did anybody do the math on the fly as we read through? When does it say in verse 20 that they were married? And at the end of verse 26, that these twins were born. Married at age 40. Born at age 60. 20 years. You know, they weren't in the womb for 20 years. This is 20 years of waiting. The gap between the two sentences in verse 21. 20 years. Verse 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Pause. 20 years. 20 years of continued prayer, of waiting, of praying, of waiting, of praying. We're left to imagine the the grief and pain Isaac and Rebecca felt. Certainly he would know his own story, how he was born after 25 years of waiting. But here they wait and wait and wait. You might remember when when Rebecca originally left home to marry Isaac, her brothers blessed her. Genesis 24:60, "Our sister, may you become thousands of 10,000s and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him." Thousands of 10,000 offspring who possess the gate of their enemies. What a what a hope. But here she is year after year empty. I wonder if you can relate. Hopes coming up empty. This sounds a lot like Abraham and Sarah before them, except for one major difference. We never heard that Abraham prayed for Sarah. Instead, he listened to the voice of Sarah and took Hagar as a wife and had child by her. They sought their own solution to the problem rather than waiting on God to act. Unlike Abraham, Isaac, prays and waits. They turn to the only power that can help in the time of need, God himself, and they continue to trust. And 20 years later, we can now read the rest of verse 21. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebecca, his wife, conceived. God hears church. Even when the gap is 20 years, God remembers and God hears. The God of of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is a personal God. He hears what his people pray to him, and especially those who pray in grief and pain. How's your prayer life, brother, sister? Do you need encouragement to persevere in sincere, waiting prayer? One of the greatest motivators of confidence in prayer is, is the knowledge that he hears, like we see him doing here. He is not deaf to his people's prayers. This, of course, does not mean that God is some vending machine, that if we put in the of of prayer and faith, then we... We get whatever we wish, but it does mean that that part of God's plan is that He gives what He wills in response to prayer. I'm I'm reminded after our first child, Rebecca and I had had difficulty getting pregnant month after month, negative. We tried for, for almost a year. But what is remarkable to me, after becoming weary, I wrote out a prayer to God and sent it as a letter to Rebecca, wondering out loud why God was withholding a child but, but expressing to him our trust. We, we knew that he hadn't promised us a child like he had to Isaac, but we, we knew that he would hear our prayer and would answer according to his, his secret will, whatever it was. And, no joke, when we found out that we were pregnant with with Asa, we did the math, and it was the very week I had postmarked that letter to Rebecca. All that to demonstrate, church, God hears, even in the waiting. God does not just appoint the ends, but he appoints the means. He gives what he has promised in answer to prayer. Let me say that again. God does not just appoint the ends but the means. He gives what he has promised in answer to prayer. James can say, you have not because you ask not. So brothers and sisters, have confidence in prayer. He will give what he has promised in answer to prayer. For example, he loves to give strength to fight temptation in answer to prayer. He has promised in In his word, he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That's 1 Corinthians 10, 13. So so in temptation, to anger, to bitterness, to laziness, to lust, pray to the Lord to provide the way of escape, and he will provide. You might remember the acronym PTA. PTA. First, pray, then trust. Trust the promise of God's word that he has made. And finally, act. Obey. Pray, trust, act. But there are a thousand more promises for you to depend on in the Lord in prayer. And our confidence is that just like with Isaac and Rebekah, God hears But I hope you notice that's not the end of God's hearing in our passage. God hears and Rebecca becomes pregnant and she feels something strange happening. Pregnancy is is hard enough on its own, but now there is a war raging in verse 22. They're struggling within her, literally that they're crushing each other. Well, Rebecca doesn't know exactly that she's having twins. They don't have ultrasounds quite yet. So what does she do? Well, she inquires of the Lord. The family is in the habit of going to the Lord. The Lord who heard their prayers now hears her questions. And the Lord who hears answers. We'll we'll get to verse 23 in our next point, but note, in the midst of trouble, in the midst of questions, Isaac and Rebekah turn to the Lord. Christian, we should be in the habit of, of turning to the Lord in trouble. Yes, in the anxieties and worries of pregnancy, turn to the Lord in prayer, but also in the difficulties of life. A frustrating co-worker, a hard assignment, an uncooperative child at home, pain or worry in the course of your day. As the hymn puts it, what a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. I once had a friend who is a a remarkable model of this who who literally at the first hint of the need for wisdom would pause mid-sentence and utter a prayer to God for help all throughout the day. The command, church, is to pray without ceasing. So church, in all trouble, follow the example of Rebecca, inquire of the Lord, who hears and he will answer. Of course, Rebecca, in turning to the Lord, gets a very specific and important answer to her inquiry, which brings us to our third point in verse 23, God chooses. So God remembers, God hears, third, God chooses. Let me reread verse 23, God's pronouncement about the children in her womb. Verse 23, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So God, in, in answer to the inquiry, gives Rebecca unique revelation of his purpose for these children. First of all, she has the privilege before ultrasounds to find out indeed she is having twins, two in the womb. But these two will become, God says, two nations, two peoples who are divided or separated. The struggle that she's experiencing within her is a sign that that the relationship between her two children will be hostile. It's marked by conflict. And so for their children after them. This is just like Cain and Abel. Ishmael and Isaac. It will be true for Joseph and his brothers. Again, the, the seed of the serpent opposed to the seed of the woman even within the womb. We notice this conflict already when we read verses, verses 29 to 34. It, it will mark their whole story through the next few chapters as we study them. Further in history, the, the Edomites, that's Esau's family, are continual enemies to Israel, Jacob's family. But that's still to come. For, for now, in verse 23, it's specific. The older shall serve the younger. This is a reverse Reversal. Typically, it's, it's the firstborn who was to receive the inheritance and prestige, but, but not for these two. You know, God often uses what is opposite of what we would expect to his, accomplish His plans, to, to show that the power belongs to Him. It happens according to His plan. Sort of like dying on a cross to save the world. God's choice here of the, the younger over the older before they are even born is is used by Paul in what we read earlier in, in Romans 9 to teach the doctrine of election. Paul quotes this verse, Genesis 25, 23, the, the older will serve the younger. His, his point there in, in Romans 9 is to show that, that God's salvation is for those whom God sovereignly chooses. I don't know if you notice when we Read, but, but Romans 9 has 10 quotes and references from the Old Testament to, to show that, that belonging to God does not depend on birth or what a person does, but on God's mercy. Let me reread verses 10 through 13 of, of Romans 9, speaking of this passage. Paul writes, When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had do- done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but of, because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So Paul quotes Genesis 25 to show that, that God did not choose Jacob because of anything in him, but simply because of his mercy. Paul is making clear what is evident to us as we read Genesis 25. God is saying this before Jacob or Esau had done anything, whether good or bad. And and certainly the election of Jacob is not because of his birth. No, because both of them are children of Isaac. Twins, no less. Though not identical. Charles Spurgeon, the the 19th century London pastor, confesses his belief in the the doctrine of election not by just looking to God's choice of Jacob, but, but by looking at himself. Spurgeon wrote, I believe the doctrine of election because I'm quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should have never chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born, or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why she ha- he should have looked upon me with special love. So I am forced to accept that great biblical doctrine. The reason for God's choice does not lie in us at all, but in his mercy. It says, Paul concludes in Romans 9 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Hear that with me, church. It depends on God, not my will, not my work, but on God who has mercy. We boldly confess this together as a church as we read earlier in our confession of faith that we believe that election is God's eternal choice of some person's unto everlasting life, not conditioned on any, uh, for, any foreseen merit or goodness in them, but of His mercy in Christ, in consequence of which choice they are called, justified, and glorified. What the Bible teaches and what we confess Is that the reason anyone believes and is saved is not because of a merit or goodness in them, but because of God's mercy. And because of God's mercy, his his love, he chooses and predestines to life. Paul in, in Romans 9 anticipates some objections. It is God's divine prerogative to have mercy on whom he will have mercy. God is free to do as he pleases. He is creator. We are his clay. Friends, it is is wonderful that we have unity as a church in confessing this controversial doctrine. This doctrine is, is not a topic for argument. It is a gift taught by the Bible for our comfort. You know, the, the truth of election is meant to be given to us for our assurance. If your salvation is grounded first in God's choice of you, and not inherited by, by birth or earned by behavior, it has a rock-solid foundation. This is the reason that, that Paul praises God in Ephesians 1, 3-4. This is wonderful He writes, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Saint, your your genuine faith evident in good works is proof That you were chosen before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before Him. And this reveals God's love at the bottom of the bottom of the bottom of the reason that you are a Christian is nothing else but God's love. His heart for you is mercy by His own choice. It depends on God who has mercy for you. You know, the the good news of the Bible doesn't start with Jesus' birth. It doesn't even start with your sin that makes salvation necessary. No, the good news starts with God's love before time. And that love, expressed in mercy, is God's election of all who will be saved. And because of His love for the elect, God purposed to rescue us from the condemnation our sins rightly deserve. So in the fullness of time, He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die our death for our sins, so that we can receive the gift of His mercy in justice. Our confidence is all that the Father gives to Christ will come to Him. If you come to Christ in faith, he says he will never cast you out. Everyone who looks on the sun and believes will have eternal life. Friends, rest in this comfort today, grounded before time in God's love. Well, you might ask, after all this, what about human will? Do we not have the freedom to choose? Yes, we do. The Bible everywhere upholds both the sovereignty of God in salvation and our responsibility, including what we read in Genesis 25. That's exactly what Genesis goes on to show us in the final verses of our passage. So let's turn to our fourth point. In verses 24 through 34, we do what we want. We do what we want. In these last verses, the first thing to notice, there is no more mention of God at all. You can look through them and and confirm that, that I'm right. He doesn't answer any prayer. He doesn't make any announcement or intervene in any observable way. These are humans operating as they will freely. But, of course, it goes exactly As God has sovereignly appointed. In verse 24, the the children are born and they're named after how they came out. Esau, the eldest, meaning hairy. And Jacob, the younger, meaning holder of the heel. As they grow up, in verse 27, their unique personalities and and talents come out. Esau is an outdoorsman, a a hunter. Jacob is a, a civilized man staying at home. But those differences reveal a division in the home. Verse 28, their father Isaac prefers Esau and their mother Rebekah prefers Jacob. All of these details set up stories that will come later. But but here, what, what happens in the last verses? Why Esau was in the field and Jacob in the tent cooking? In verse 29, Esau comes back from hunting and he is exhausted. So he asks his brother for the red stew that he is making. A perfectly normal request. It's what we would all do in similar circumstances. This is where he gets his nickname Edom, which means red. But what happens next is, is quite strange. In, in exchange for the stew, Jacob demands Esau's birthright, his, his right as heir to the family fortune and, and in this family particularly the substance of the, the Abrahamic promise of the land of, of offspring it's quite the request we have to imagine clearly it's something that Jacob was, was thinking about ready at a moment's notice to ask Esau for his part is, is driven by his appetite thinking of only what is right before him his request for food is, is impulsive I think his claim that he's about to die is is probably exaggerated. He could walk back to the tent. I'm sure he could walk somewhere else and find some food. But the deed is, is done and he goes his way. And the last phrase of the chapter, in verse 34, is Moses' commentary on what Esau has done. Thus, Esau despised his birthright. By selling it so cheaply, he shows what was in his heart that he despised it. He had no appreciation for the fact that it, it was his by right to carry forward the Abrahamic covenant. God's plan of redemption for the whole world, through whom all nations will be blessed, through whom the Savior will come. No, Esau held God's promises in contempt. Christian, we should be warned, this is a powerful picture of, of the nature of sin. It's no different today. When, when we are driven by our natural appetites, even literal hunger, what we do is foolish. And not just foolish, but destructive to ourselves like it was for Esau. And offensive to God. Paul describes our sins as Passions of the flesh, the desires of the body and the mind. James says that, that we are tempted and lured and enticed by our own desires. Let me remind you, sin never delivers on what it promises. It's like chocolate-covered sawdust. It looks appealing, but when you take a bite, it turns to dust in the mouth. So Christian... Make no provision for the desires of the flesh. Cultivate a, a patient heart that turns away from the desires that tempt. But of course we have to say it's not just Esau who acts wickedly. Certainly Jacob's request was opportunistic. He retains no honor here. Do you think this is the one chosen by God? Scheming and opportunistic? This is certainly not how it's supposed to be. God has chosen this family to bless the world, to restore relationships, not only between one another, but between them and God, undoing the curse that fell on Adam. Well, it's clear, saints, that both the elect and non-elect are self-centered and incapable on their own of doing good. And friends, I think the purpose of this narrative, with with no mention of God's name, shows that God's choice of Jacob over Esau did not run contrary to their wills. They did exactly as they saw best according to their own desires. There is no injustice on God's part, each getting exactly what they wanted and exactly what God ordained. Now, Jacob has the birthright of the firstborn. The older shall serve the younger. Yes, the sovereignty of God in election is in perfect harmony with the desires of mankind. God doesn't step in here and force Esau to sell his birthright against his will, he doesn't step in and suggest the theft to Jacob. God is sovereign even over the impulsive and scheming desires of sinful men and women so that he works all things according to the counsel of his will so that the purpose of election might continue. Why is it that you are a Christian? Behind all the the circumstances that that led you to, to hearing and believing the gospel even through all the sins that you committed... The reason that you are a Christian is because of God's sovereign choice. Let me say it again. Why am I a Christian? I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should have never chosen him. And I am sure that he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me. For I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. But he has looked upon you and I with special love, saint. So rest in the assurance of God's eternal love for you, a love that will never change. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we magnify you. For your electing love of us. Father, that it is not because of, of anything that we have done, nor by our birth, that we receive salvation, but simply because of your love. It depends not on us, but you. Lord, we joy, rejoice in the assurance that this gives us this morning. Lord, that because it depends on your love, we have security. Lord, that your love never changes, faithful to a thousand generations. Lord, I pray that our hearts would sing of this love this morning and that we would walk from the halls of this room into our week ready to tell all of this love. It's in Jesus' name that we pray this. Amen.